X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from the town of Portland, Oregon. That's embarrassing. It is Wednesday, December 9th. Today, back in the day, December 9th, 1805, the Lewis and Clark expedition began construction on Fort Clatsop. It was built near present-day Astoria. Fort Clatsop was the winter headquarters of the Corps of Discovery, also known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Sent by Thomas Jefferson, who was then the president, the expedition was looking for an inland waterway to the Pacific Ocean. Along the way, they gathered as much data they could on the natural resources and indigenous peoples they encountered. 18 months after beginning their journey, the party saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time at Cape Disappointment. But with the winter fast approaching, the party scouted locations upriver to build shelter. The expedition spent three months at Fort Clatsop. There, they hunted, gathered, and traded with local Clatsop and Chinook natives. It was in this time that Lewis and Clark recorded some of their most important discoveries. The actual fort has still been destroyed. In 1955, the Astoria Chamber of Commerce built a replica. It's now a national monument. Today, back in the day, December 9th, 1965, a Charlie Brown Christmas premiered on PBS. It was the first ever animated peanut special. The program was commissioned and funded by the Coca-Cola Company. Despite its low budget and unconventional tone, the special was a hit with viewers. And the soundtrack by jazz composer Vince Guaraldi is now iconic. It sold over 4 million copies in the United States. A Charlie Brown Christmas has now aired on broadcast television every year since 1965. Today we will have your Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with Portland City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Protesters have barricaded a historically black-owned home on North Mississippi Avenue after clashes with the Portland police. The home is known as the Red House on Mississippi. It's long been a point of contention between the police and racial justice protesters. Protesters have been camping there for months to prevent a black and indigenous family from being removed. The family has been there for decades, but recently been foreclosed on. Yesterday, Portland police arrived at about 5 in the morning to help the property's new owners secure the home. Officers arrested seven people, said they were trespassing, recovered several firearms. They used chain-link barricades to block traffic during the effort. Following those arrests, hundreds of protesters gathered to join the campers. The resulting standoff forced law enforcement to retreat after several police vehicles were damaged by thrown objects. By 10.30 in the morning, protesters started repurposing the chain-link barricades, fortifying them, covering them with signs protesting the eviction. Gary Floyd, an activist who ran a kitchen in the home's backyard, had this to say about the police actions, and I am quoting, Everything that happened this morning had nothing to do with justice. Today, the Red House on Mississippi is one of the few remaining residences in its section of the avenue. Many of the past homes have been converted to retail or torn down for multifamily units. Indeed, my foster brother lived just about a block north of there. And right next door to the south of that Red House was a single-family house they tore down and turned into 16 units. The neighborhood, of course, has long been a focal point for concerns about gentrification and displacement. It's time for your daily dose of data. Yesterday, Oregon Health Authority reported 36 more deaths related to COVID-19, the state's highest single-day death toll so far. The state's death toll is now at 1,080. To mark the breaking of yet another record, OHA Director Patrick Allen said, quote, All of us are affected, and the families and friends of those lost, most of all. OHA also reported 1,341 new cases, which brings the total to just over 87,000. In other COVID news, the first cases of coronavirus in Portland prisons have been confirmed. At first, two cases were reported at Columbia River Correctional Institution. 
minimum security prison with about 595 beds. The 80-person unit in which those inmates lived is now under lockdown. Since then, Oregon Department of Corrections has detected COVID-19 in, quote, several different housing units, but they have not provided the total number of confirmed cases. As a result of the possible outbreak, the entire facility is now under a two-week quarantine. And in Washington State, Governor Jay Inslee has extended some COVID-19 restrictions to January 4th. Those restrictions include the continued closure of indoor spaces such as gyms and restaurants. A federal judge has rejected the second motion to block a $62 million COVID relief fund for black Oregonians. The Oregon CARES Fund has faced two legal challenges since it was authorized by the legislature in July. The fund arose from a larger $200 million CARES Act fund, which was allocated for specific communities. $62 million of that was set aside for the Oregon CARES Fund and black Oregonians who have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And on Monday night, federal judge Karen Emmergut rejected the second request for a preliminary injunction to stop the fund. In a ruling, she said the fund's race-based criterion may indeed prove unconstitutional, but the plaintiff had failed to prove that the fund is causing irreparable damage in the meantime. The plaintiff in that case is the owner of downtown's Revolucion Coffee House, Maria Garcia. She alleges the fund violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. In her statement, she said it's not fair the state would deny access to relief solely because of my race. Three weeks ago, Judge Immigrant rejected another motion to block the fund. That motion was brought by Great Northern Resources, a white-owned logging company in John Day. Both of those cases still pending. Immigrant has agreed to hear Garcia's case on an expedited basis. Until then, Governor Kate Brown and Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum have promised to defend the fund's constitutionality. The future of Oregon's eviction moratorium looks grim as state senators remain divided on the issue. For over a week, Oregon House representatives have been promoting a measure to extend Oregon's eviction ban, which is currently set to expire at the end of the month. House Speaker Tina Kotek has publicly called for a third special session to address the measure, which would extend the moratorium until June. State senators, however, are more divided on the issue. Specifically, they worry that the House bill provides too little assistance to landlords. The House bill sets aside $100 million for landlord assistance, which some argue would not adequately address the estimated amount of missed rent so far. Democratic Senator Betsy Johnson has since floated a competing measure, which would offer tax credits to landlords who forgive missed rent. That measure, however, does not extend the moratorium on evictions. Senator Jeff Golden has come out against that approach, saying he could only support a measure that both assists landlords and extends the moratorium. Earlier this week, Senate Democrats met to discuss their options, but came away pessimistic that a special session would be called. Governor Brown has said that, quote, I want to see support, frankly, from Democrats and Republicans. Senator Shamia Fagan has taken a firmer stance on the issue. She said, quote, Oregonians deserve a special session and a Senate caucus that will take the bill to the floor. If the eviction ban expires at the end of the month, an estimated 20,000 people could face houselessness. If the governor does call a third special session, takeaway cocktails could be on the table. Portland Representative Rob Nose plans to introduce a measure to legalize cocktails to go. The bill would benefit countless bars and restaurants in town, many of which have been calling for takeout cocktails since the start of the pandemic. Lots and lots of restaurants basically make their profit on lottery and liquor. Other states, such as Washington and California, have already legalized takeout drinks. One for the road! The bill would require the drinks be sold in sealed containers, and no more than two drinks could be sold per substantial food item. So if you're real thirsty, you better also be real hungry. On top of that, the bill would be purely temporary, expiring 60 days after the state of emergency is lifted. 
If a special session doesn't happen, those plans to bring the bill in January. And finally, good news. This year's Menorah Lighting in Pioneer Square has officially gone virtual. Once again, technology has saved a Portland tradition from being lost to the pandemic. Chabad of Oregon's Hanukkah celebration will be available for those who celebrate the holiday via live stream this Thursday at 5.30 p.m. on Zoom. Links for the free stream will be available on Chabad of Oregon's Facebook page. The lighting of the 12-foot menorah will still take place in Pioneer Square, but only organizers and media will be allowed to attend in person. Last year, hundreds gathered to watch the lighting, which has been a tradition in Portland for over 40 years. Keeping the tradition alive is all the more meaningful now for Chabad of Oregon, after two separate fires damaged the Chabad Center for Jewish Life in August. An arson investigation into the second fire is still ongoing. And that's today's today's Quick Quick 6 Local local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have an interview with Portland City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. She'll be speaking with X-Ray's Christine Alexander about the police oversight measure we just passed in November and the Portland Street response. Here are Commissioner Hardesty and Christine. Joining us now on Zoom is City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. She's here to talk about the city's newest adjustment to policing. In the November election, voters passed a police oversight measure which allows for independent review boards. Thanks for joining us, Joanne. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, you're welcome. Well, you've had a busy year before we get to all that (laughs) other stuff. How are you feeling about all you've accomplished at the end of 2020 here? Uh, Well, honestly, I haven't had time to actually think about what's been accomplished. But yes, it's been an extremely busy year, uh, and we've been involved in a whole host of issues, uh, whether it's around um, uh, 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 privacy rights, uh, which um, the ban on facial recognition technology, uh, we were able to pass the first in the country, uh, private ban that will take effect on January 1st. Kudos. as you know, we were able to divert uh, $15 million from Portland Police Bureau's budget, um, and most of those dollars are being reinvested in community solutions, uh, including Portland Street Response, which will also kick off in February of 2021. So we've done a lot of work uh, in 2020 in preparation for some fabulous outcomes in 2021. Well, um, Ms. Hardesty, in the November election, as we said, voters passed a police oversight measure which allows for independent review boards. Aside from budget, how is this board different from the review board that previously existed? Well, the biggest difference is it will be a community-driven oversight board. Um, we, uh, have, we will put this board together so that the majority of the people on the board are people who have had some experience with policing in the city of Portland. We are prioritizing black indigenous and other people of color, houseless people and people with mental health issues because those are the individuals that most directly are impacted by how we do policing today. Well, and what makes a member of this independent review board qualified to be on the board? Well, um, as I continue to remind people, Many of us have seen videos all over the country of egregious actions taken by police officers against community members. 
You don't need any special training to know what happened to George Floyd should have never happened and should never, ever, ever happen again. And so uh, people will bring their, their lived experience, common sense to the board, but the board will also be able to hire their own um, civilian investigators to actually conduct the investigation. So it will be staffed, it will have an executive director, there will be uh, professional investigators that will actually conduct the investigations. The community board is really about making sure that the community is engaged in how we define what we want uh, police officers to do and how we want them to uh, uh, respond uh, to community needs. Well, you mentioned investigations. So this board will review deaths in custody, use of force, and discrimination from police officers. Is there any drive to revisit old cases like the case of the death of Patrick Kimmons, which demonstrators uh, have been pleading to be reopened? You know, I would say not. As We're not anticipating opening old cases because, as you can imagine, um, uh, this year has created a lot of uh, complaints against Portland Police. And currently, both IPR and Portland Police Bureau are well behind in investigating those complaints. I suspect that we will, the new committee will have more than enough work to do, just starting from the day that they are seated. Um, and that will be about two years from now. I see. So you say about two years from now. That yeah. that's what I was wondering. Um, if the what are the next steps to actually get the board on its feet? Yes. Yeah, so the next steps will be the city council will pass a resolution that actually gives us the opportunity to start recruiting for the commission. Now the commission will be a temporary board that will work out all the final details about how the community oversight board will operate. Uh, and uh, so that board will be in place for at least 18 months. And so they will work out what are the exact numbers? How do we remove barriers for community members to participate? How do we replace people who uh, need to leave because their life circumstances change? All that work will be worked out over the next 18 months. We also need to make changes to at the state level to the arbitration um, uh, process to ensure that a community oversight board's decisions are final. Last but not least, uh, we have another police union contract talks that will start again in January. And we will need to make sure that we come out of those talks with a commitment to a community oversight board. So there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, from the passage of the measure and the voters, as you said, overwhelmingly, 82% um, uh, voted in favor of this new oversight board. But we're going to take the time necessary to make sure that we put it in place right um, and that we have uh, that we are doing all we can to make sure that we're not violating any, um, any labor laws um, in the process. So there's a lot more work to do, but uh, the first step was getting overwhelming support from the community. My guest is Portland City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty talking about the new police oversight measures allowing for an independent review board. Um, you mentioned the police unions. One of the uh, biggest opponents of this measure was the 
head of the Portland Police Union, uh, saying that there was already an, a, a board that over, had oversight. What are the differences? What, what's the difference between what we had and what this new board will do? Well, as someone who's been working on police reform in Portland for well over 30 years, every, every um, task force, every work group uh, that has been put together, the number one thing that they said they wanted was a truly independent police oversight board uh, that could be trusted by the community and trusted by the police. Um, and so I think, and what we have today with IPR, you may remember uh, Vera Katz, when she was mayor, asked Gary Blackmer to take what was a majority report that number one priority was an independent oversight board and the minority report, which was a tinkering around the edges, and asked Gary Blackmer to develop a system of oversight uh, that we would then uh, test out for about a year. So here we are 15 years later, mm. uh, and the community has lost all confidence that this board actually does the appropriate uh, amount of investigations. In fact, prior to the DOJ coming to town in uh, 2012, uh, the, uh, the independent police review threw out uh, over 40% of the cases that they got in. Wow. They refused to investigate uh, cases that were submitted by houseless community members. They absolutely refused to investigate uh, cases of racially discriminatory um, uh, uh, practices uh, by Portland police. Um, and so over the last 15 years, the community's uh, respect and um, expectations of IPR have been greatly diminished by their own actions. Hmm. Um, and honestly, I, I believe that um, because we don't trust the current process, it is really important to start from scratch. There's nothing we could do today to, to make IPR a truly independent uh, community oversight board. So that's why we're starting over. So uh, starting over, what do you think some of the roadblocks are when it comes to contract negotiations with the police union? Well, I'm not going to get into too much detail because uh, with my position on the city council, as you know, I'm going to be intimately involved in those negotiations. But what I will say is that from my position as a community activist for 30 years, I always felt like no one represented the public in those uh, negotiations with Portland Police Union. Um, and I used to be just appalled at the giveaways that we gave to the police and I didn't feel like the community got any benefit from those contracts. Hmm. And so um, uh, so we have an opportunity to start uh, making the police contract fair for police, but also fair for the community that they are sworn to protect and serve. So what are your thoughts on the upcoming Portland Street response? Oh, I just can't wait for Portland Street response to roll out. Um, we anticipate February of 2021 when we will roll out our first van in the Lynch neighborhood. I am really excited because I think what I learned um, in our last budget conversation is that community members are fearful of what replaces police. Um, many, many, many people in the community understand that it doesn't make sense. Many of the calls we send police to respond to. So Portland Street Response 
uh, will have a three-person team responding to 911 calls. It will include a qualified mental health professional, it will include an EMT, and it will include a peer supporter. When we started building Portland Street Response, the number one thing that people on the street said they needed uh, when responding to a 911 call was compassionate care. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for Portland Street Response, I, I'm looking forward to both rolling it out and then over the next few years, rolling it out citywide. I think it's a brilliant idea, and I, I'm excited about it, too. I, I think that, that that kind of a program is exactly what the community needs to evolve from a more militarized police system that we've seen, you know, um, grow and expand since the days of Daryl Gates in Los Angeles and that kind of SWAT team idea of policing in our community. What what Portland Street Response does is 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 exactly what we need. It's like that, uh, not necessarily a buffer, but um, that one piece that was missing between someone in crisis and a policeman coming to their door or finding them on the street. I think it's it's exactly the piece we needed to fit in there. So c- congratulations well, on that. Thank you. And I will also say, um, I think it is rare for government to go to the people most impacted first and say, what do you need? And so as we were building Portland Street Response, I conducted several focus groups with uh, folks who are living on the street currently. Uh, we did surveys uh, with uh, folks who are living on the street. We also talked to business owners and homeowners um, and renters throughout the community. So we did a very thoughtful approach to talk to the people most impacted. Um, And uh, across the board, there was agreement that we needed something other than what we have today. Today, if you call 911 and the operator doesn't know who to send, they will send police, fire, and ambulance. Wow. And we have not changed our first responder system since the early 1900s. And the last time we made a change... Wait, wait, wait. You said early 1900s? You're talking over 100 years ago. That is correct. Wow. And the last change we made was going from all voluntary responders uh, to paid responders. And so as a society, we haven't looked at... has our system changed to accommodate a new world, right? Uh, We are a lot different than we were 100 years ago, and but we are not responding any differently than we did 100 years ago, except with more militarized uh, responses. Exactly. Wow. That that just blew my mind. (laughs) That just blew my mind. If you think about it, if you think about how much our country, our city, our state has changed in 100 years, and and I will also say until this summer, the public conversation around what makes us safe in our community was driven primarily by law enforcement. Mm. This summer... I saw a shift in the public narrative that I have not seen in my lifetime. And the public is no longer accepting that if we just continue to give police more money, somehow we will feel safe. And so I think the events of this summer, the worldwide racial justice um, reckoning uh, that's taking place um, has given us an ideal opportunity to really rethink a lot of what our uh, traditional assumptions have been. 
and um, and so it, it, it it's fabulous to be in this moment in history to know that um, the the public narrative has changed it has shifted and the community wants us to invest more in community and less in uh, 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 criminal justice uh, uh, activities because what we know is quite frankly we use our jails today for people who should not be in jail right uh, and but for being houseless or having a mental health issue or having an alcohol or drug issue, they would never ever enter our criminal justice system. And all we do is exacerbate those problems by putting people into a correctional uh, institution. And so for me, this is only one tiny piece of really rethinking what community safety looks like and, and from a whole host of perspectives. Because based on your economic, based on your race, uh, based on what part of town you live in, community safety feels a lot different uh, uh, to different people. Wow. Well, and, you know, you talk about incarceration and, and in the prison system, but, you know, taking it one step back, the we need complete criminal justice reform uh, in the court system as well. So I'm happy to see that Portland is ahead of the curve and making some of these things happen, especially after uh, the summer that we had, as you mentioned, the death of Mr. Floyd and the protests here in Portland. Uh, speaking of that, do you think there's any any uh, chance that the um, cases of the uh, demonstrators that, uh, from the Portland protests will be looked at by the review board? By the new review board? Yeah. No, they should be completed by the time the new review board takes its seat. Ah, okay, I got it. Because we're still talking two years from now at the earliest. So Ms. Hardesty, what is next for you? What is next? Uh, rolling out uh, our uh, Portland Street response in February, continuing to uh, convene uh, the city of Portland's uh, uh, city council, Multnomah County Commission, the DA, and, um, and hoping that both Portland Police Chief and the Sheriff will start participating in these uh, conversations around rethinking community safety. Uh, we've had two convenings so far, um, and because it, it is a system, right? So mm -hmm. we we can't just fix police without understanding that if police are making less arrests, that means that we will need less Multnomah County sheriffs because we will be jailing less people, and we will need less sheriffs uh, to actually uh, uh, guard people who are in jail. If we need, if we're not. Uh, 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 prosecuting people for misdemeanor drug possessions anymore. That means we will need less assistant DAs prosecuting low-level drug crimes, right? And so if we're not talking about it as a system, then we will miss the opportunity to redirect public resources in ways that make sense. And so that's why I've started convening uh, these other governments that make up Multnomah County and I actually had a couple of counselors from Gresham as well in our meeting yesterday. And so the goal is to get all of us in elected office in Multnomah County to really think about how the ballot measure changes as well as uh, where we're headed as far as criminal justice reform and community safety, how those pieces all fit together and how we as governments um, have to do our pieces internally 
and then make sure that we are building a system that is more just and more fair and quite frankly is utilizing a lot less resources because we're redirecting those resources into community supports. Wow. Thank you for connecting the dots for me, because what you just explained is the idea that the, the things that we passed on the, the measures we passed on the ballot here in Oregon uh, in November are, are things that have to do with, uh, you know, decriminalizing certain things. And, and you just showed me how that will trickle down. Forgive me for using that phrase to, <laughs> yeah, to, because trickle down doesn't work. We know that economically. Right. However, what you just explained is that these, these new measures we're taking are a first step in changing the criminal justice system and how many police we need and what kind of policing we do. So, Thank you again for the uh, tutorial, and thank you for filling us in on on what you're doing with the um, port in Portland, here in Portland in the region. Joanne Hardesty, Portland City Commissioner, thank you for joining us on X-Ray FM. My pleasure. You have a fabulous day, and I look forward to our next conversation. Awesome. Me too. Thanks. Thank you to Commissioner Hardesty for joining the local, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving a five-star review. Thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.